So even as uh, I'm stepping up to the pulpit, we have people on our outreach team, our evangelism team, stepping up to people's doors and knocking and uh, sharing the good news with them. I just got word that uh, one of the neighborhoods they're going to has a neighborhood-wide garage sale, uh, which is opportunities. And so as I'm preaching, feel free to pray uh, for that team that God would be with their mouths, give them the words to say and be drawing people to Himself uh, that God would bring to that neighborhood an awakening this morning. And so guys, we're in part four of a series that we're calling Awakening because this is what we have been hoping for and praying for, a spiritual awakening. Not just for us, not just for ourselves or our family or our tribe or whatever, but for a national spiritual awakening. In week, in week one, we introduced the topic and we called you at that time to commit to pray. Pray for a national revival until God either says yes or shut up. Like That's what we should be praying for. Like We should be praying for spiritual discontentment with the status quo of small victories in a private faith and ask God to expand the borders like of people's knowledge of Him. Like Jesus is too great to be kept secret. Like we need to be praying for a sense of desperation. And in week two, we saw that in the life of King Josiah. And in that week, we got a, a, a picture of what revival looks like when it bursts on the scene. And in the life of King Josiah, we saw someone who took God very seriously. And he took his own sin and the sin of his people very seriously. And he took obedience to God very seriously. And then last week, we looked at the foundation of all true revival, which is the holiness of God. Like when we see God, when we really see Him for who He is, we see ourselves perhaps for the very first time. We see the truth about us. Like we're exposed to the light of God's glory. Like when we awaken to God's holiness, we also awaken to our own sinful complicity. We've sat in judgment on the world, not realizing that we're no exception. We're not the solution. We're very often just like those we sit in judgment on. And when we realize that, when we see God's holiness and our complicity, it is then and only then that we will cry out in true desperation for God's amazing and undeserved and absolutely necessary grace. In that sermon last week, I asked the question, can you live without revival? And we concluded that as long as you're content to live without revival, you will. But God, once again, in His grace, has a way of bringing us to that point of desperation that we're talking about. Like He brings us to an end of ourselves, causing us to cry out to Him in rescue. And what God can do for us and has done over and over again on a personal level, He can do on a national level as well. Matthew Henry wrote, when God intends a great mercy 
for His people, the first thing He does is set them a praying. I love that. Are you a praying? Like if you have you been praying for revival? Like in your life, in your family, in your church, community, in our nation, have you been crying out to God in desperation for revival? As long as you're content to live without it, you will. Like I'm, I said, I've said this each week, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but like I've told you each week, I believe that we really are at the very door of either national revival or national judgment. Either national revival or national judgment. Leonard Ravenhill writes, sometimes great revival precedes great judgment. And other times, great judgment precedes great revival. Revival and judgment go hand in hand. We stand somewhere in that cycle today. And so the question for us is, what will it be? Will it be revival or remnant? You know, we know a little bit about what revival looks like, but you know, if you want to know what a remnant looks like, just look at our study of the life of Daniel taken away into captivity in Babylon, living faithfully. Even though he could have gotten away with living recklessly, he was faithful to God all of his life. He was the remnant, and being the remnant, he provided for a remnant to go back into the land. Will it be revival or remnant? Like I look at this and think, hey, you know what? That's a win-win for us. If you're a believer, this is a win-win. God will either send us revival or He will enable us to be faithful in the midst of a crooked world. But one of these is better for America than the other. And so that's what we should be praying for. Like we should be praying that God would send revival. We know what it looks like. And so this morning, since we've already seen what a revival looks like when it arrives today, we're going to look at what God's judgment looks like when it arrives. And so my question is, will you recognize God's judgment when you see it? And so to see it, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. I'm not going to ask you to stand because this is a really long passage and I'm going to read all of it beginning in verse 18. Paul writes to the church of Rome, "...for the wrath of God is revealed." It's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. If you have a paper Bible, underline that word suppress. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Underline without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They were all gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree and those who practice such things deserve to die, they do do not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So my question is, does any of that sound familiar to you? Like, does that resemble something that you've seen lately? Does that not look like it's our culture? Like it could have been written this year instead of written in 60 A.D. Like it's, like it's stunning. I mean, that is our world today. And judgment has come. Now I want you to understand it's important when we talk about judgment to understand that there is a final judgment that is coming to the world and the Bible tells us that every eye will see it. And on that day, we'll have no problem recognizing it for what it is. And God will at that time shut every mouth from their complaint so that no one will be able to say this is unfair because they will recognize it as completely fair. The Bible calls that day the day of the Lord. And it will be clear. It will be definitive. And it will be, hear this, devastating. Now, however, there will be degrees of judgment both on a personal level and nationally preceding that day. And according to Romans chapter 1, even right now, God is pouring out His judgment right here and right now. We only need eyes to be able to see it. In fact, being able to see it and understand it for what it is and act upon that understanding, that knowledge, may be the very thing that rescues you from the final judgment to come. Paul tells them, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Divine judgment is happening right here and right now. And when we talk about wrath, we don't mean that God is merely mad at us and that He is really going to let us have it. Like That's not what wrath equals. Like wrath is not uncontrollable. Like God is not a toddler on a rampage. Right? 
Like his wrath is not some sort of uncontrollable road rage. In fact, hear this, it's significantly more terrifying than that. If that's all you had to worry about, that's a cakewalk. If God is just a toddler on the rampage, maybe He will get over it after a while. Right? Give your toddler a cookie. He's happy. But see, God's wrath is not like that. God's wrath is controlled. It's deliberate. It's measured. And hear this, it is utterly fair. It is completely just. It is absolutely what we deserve. God's wrath is not an overreaction. In fact, Paul uses a word to describe God's response to sin that means upsurging. Like God's, this is God's moral outrage that has been building His moral outrage against evil. It is the righteous anger of God kind of coming up and cresting over the wall of heaven and, and spilling out over all the earth. Like his, it's His reasonable response, the reasonable response of a holy God to our cosmic rebellion and our total disregard of His Son. Like I said, it's what we deserve. And in this passage, Paul tells us why God's wrath is being revealed and how it's being revealed. He writes, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now judgment isn't just coming in the future. God is revealing His wrath today to all of those who are unbowed and unimpressed against all those who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. All those who deny the reality of categories like sin. Like you get this image of people, someone holding down the lid on something, holding down the cover on something, trying to push out of sight and out of mind the reality of sin and judgment. We suppress the truth by our unrighteousness. And because of that, the more unrighteousness, the more suppression of truth. In fact, I think that's why there is an absolute assault on innocence in our culture today. Why does the world want to fill our children's minds with filth? Because it's what the enemy wants. He wants to rob them of their innocence. He wants them to be able, along with us, to suppress the truth by our unrighteousness. And so God's judgment is being poured out against all those who say that God does not judge. Against all those who say God has better things to concern Himself with my life or my thoughts or what I do in my bedroom. And so let me ask you, are you counting on the God of your own imagination? Are you counting on that God, betting on that God for your life and your eternity? Or are you betting your eternity on the One who actually exists? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How? How has God revealed Himself? For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. 
God has revealed Himself so clearly that it is undeniable. Like we have to turn off something in our heart and in our mind to not believe that God is the one who brought all this together. Open your eyes and open your heart to God's creation and you will know that there is a Creator. Like God has revealed Himself so clearly that by doing so, He has made atheism an act of faith and not an act of reality. We have to choose to believe that there's not a God and place our faith in that belief because God has written His name in creation. Here's our real problem. And it's not science. It's not knowledge. It's not understanding. It's not an education. Our problem is a moral problem for although they knew God. So why are we in the mess that we're in? Because man knew the truth And we all have deliberately turned away. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. Mankind would rather have ignorance and be the center of their own universe than come to grips with the fact that there is a God to whom we must give an account. For although they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Like They knew perfectly well that there was a God. They just didn't care. Like they knew they were rebelling. That they were committing cosmic treason and they just didn't care. Instead, they made a trade. And what's the trade they made? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for gods of their own creation that would affirm their choices instead of bowing their heart and their life before the one true and holy God. They fashioned God for the, a God for themselves that would give the thumbs up to the choices that they were making. Like what happens when we refuse to recognize God? Do we stop worshiping? Of course not. Like we were made to worship. We simply find a new object for our worship. As John Calvin said, the heart of man is an idol factory. And so that's what we do. So when the glory departs, church, Ichabod is written on our hearts. When the glory departs, chaos ensues, which results in a moral disintegration that you read about in this passage. And you get people who are unrepentantly and uncaringly undone. Like remember last week's sermon, we had Isaiah coming face to face with the holiness of God. With seraphs around him saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And what does Isaiah do? He falls down and says, Woe is me, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord, the King of glory. I'm undone. See, we have a culture that's undone, but they don't care. We have a culture that knows it's undone, but they're unrepentant. 
So what do they do with it? They suppress that truth by their unrighteousness. They push it down out of sight, out of mind. Like our pride and ingratitude leads to more suppression of the truth, which leads to greater darkness. And that greater darkness leads to moral chaos. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Once again, we made a trade. Our next trade is this. We exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We exchanged the truth about God and the truth about the world He created for a lie that makes us feel good and affirms our actions and the inclinations of our heart. And so how does God respond? Like look at the, right there. Verse 24, He lets us. Like He lets us do this. God gave them up. Like we read those same three words Uh, those same four words, three different times in this passage. In verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. In verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions sexually. Verse 28, since they did not fit, see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Understand that this giving up is and giving over is not a, a passive decision on God's part. It's an active decision. He is not simply throwing up His hands and saying, I'm done with this, I give up. Like we do with our kids when they're out of control. We're just like, I'm, I'm just done. I don't, I don't even want to think about it. I'm out of here. God's not doing that. God's not giving up on us. He's giving us up. Like, Like instead of giving up on us, God hands humanity over to their sin to accomplish a specific purpose. Like God's judgment is actually to give us exactly what we want. God allows men and women to go as far down as they desire. Like His wrath, His active wrath in this passage is shown in the removal of His restraining influence in the world to restrain sin. Like God's common grace. And so judgment looks like this. God can do nothing worse to sinners than grant their desires. That's judgment in this passage. The wrath of God revealed from heaven in this passage is God letting us do what we want to do. Like the worst thing that God can do in this present life is to let us reach our goals. A life unencumbered. A life with nobody telling me what to do. Human autonomy. God will let us have that, a taste of it for a moment, and it will destroy us. In a sense, God is saying to man four very terrifying words. Thy will be done. If this is what you want, this is what you get. Like C.S. Lewis writes that in the end, there are only two kinds of people. 
those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. And that's what Paul is unpacking here. Like God's wrath, His judgment is being revealed in letting us arrive at the very destination that we have chosen for ourselves. I mean, you see it right there in the words, therefore, God gave them up. For this reason, God gave them up. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. Like the real tragedy of this passage is that we chose this destination. Like God allows us to walk through the door that we have chosen for ourselves. I mean, this is the story of the prodigal son. You know, you know the story in the Bible, Jesus told a certain man had two sons and the younger of the two said to his father, Hey father, divide your inheritance among me and my brother and give me mine now, even though you're not dead. And then it says that he went away and he spent it all in wanton living and drink, and prostitutes, and in every other way, until it was all gone. And then he finds himself going hungry, feeding pigs, and longing to fill his stomach with what the pigs were eating. Did you not think that the father knew he was going to do that? Of course he did. And he let him. He let him get to a point of total brokenness. Why? Well, in this passage, the reason why is they exchanged the glory of God for images. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They exchanged natural relations that, for those that are contrary to nature. Because we abandon God, we deserve to be abandoned. That's why God did it. Like Because we abandoned God, we exchanged His glory for the image of some serpent we traded Him in, we deserve to be abandoned to our sin and to its consequences even to eternity. I mean, this is Proverbs chapter 1 lived out. Proverbs 1, wisdom is speaking here, says, because you hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel, and despised all my reproof, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way, and have their fill of their own devices. Like, what's it saying here? As wisdom personified speaks, it's saying, I told you not to go down that path. Like, I told you not to do that thing. Like, I told you not to make that cake with poison, and you did it anyway, and now I'm going to sit back and you're going to eat it, and you're going to die. Like, you have, you have fallen into a pit that you've dug for yourself because we abandon God. We deserve to be abandoned. Like guys, in a world that is absolutely obsessed with fairness, God is the most fair and just being in the universe to our terror. So here's the downward spiral of sin and judgment. We're theologically broken, exchanging the truth of God for a lie which leads to moral brokenness, which leads to sexual brokenness, which leads to social brokenness. And life itself begins to unravel. Does that sound like any place you've been lately? Anything you've seen on the news? 
Listen to how Eugene Peterson translates Romans 1, 28 to 32. He says, since they didn't bother to acknowledge God, God quit bothering them and let them run loose. And then all hell broke loose. Rampant evil, grabbing and grasping, vicious backstabbing. They made life hell on earth with their envy, wanton killing, bickering and cheating. Look at them. Mean-spirited, venomous, fork-tongued, God-bashers, bullies, swaggerers, insufferable windbags. They keep inventing new ways of wrecking lives. They ditch their parents when they get in the way. Stupid, slimy, cruel, cold-blooded. And it's not as if they didn't know better. They know perfectly well that they're spitting in God's face and they don't care. Worse, they hand out prizes for those who do the worst things best. Sounds like the Grammys to me. Or the Academy Awards. Like it sounds like the world we're living in. And we can look at that and we can say, these people are so messed up, but hear this, before you get cocky, like look at that list again. At the end of that list, under, like as we spiral downward away from God, under all the sexual sin and all the perversion and all that stuff, it says, disobedient parents. Like why did that one just get slipped in there? Because we're all guilty. We're all guilty. Before we think that we are better than these people, like before you say, man, I'm glad I'm not one of these losers, you might want to read the very next verse. Paul says, Therefore you have no excuse. O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, Practice the very same things. Like you're without excuse. The same word here from Romans chapter uh, 1, verse 20. Like if you condemn others, then you are just as much without excuse as the atheist who denies the existence of God. Why? Because that same rebellion lives in your own heart. You see, there's more than one way to be lost. Like you could be lost in your rebellion or you could be lost in your self-righteousness. I remember growing up in a home where my brothers and sisters were out of control, chasing after alcohol and drugs and sex and everything else. And I sat back as the, the baby of 13 children, so moral, so good, so self-righteous. And I sat in judgment on them thinking I was so much better. Well, guys, they were lost in their rebellion, but I was lost in my just utter damnable self-righteousness. My morality and religiosity. What they were doing on the outside was bound to my own heart. And just because I knew how to manage my sin did not make me holy. And just because you know how to manage your sin and keep it safe and keep it secret does not mean you are holy. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Like one day when we stand before God, when moral and religious people stand before God, what if He chooses just to ask one question? Right? 
Have you kept the moral standard that you use to judge others? Have you kept that standard? Like what if he has a tape recorder around your neck for your entire life and he says what we're going to do to test whether or not you're righteous enough to get into heaven is we're just going to hit play. And we're going to listen to the last 70 years of your language, the last 70 years of your judgment, the last 70 years of your behavior, and see if you lived up to the standards that you expected of others. Paul asked, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? I won't. I certainly won't. Won't. Or do you presume that rich in the, on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Like these are all images really of the wrath of God in restraint. God's kindness, His forbearance, His patience. Like we've had that our entire lives. Like let God's kindness do its work in you. Like do you think, do you actually think that you deserve all the good that has come your way? all the blessings that God has shared with you? Like, do you think Do you think that God gave you up to your sin and rebellion with no greater purpose than to cause you pain and harm? Of course not. For you, God's purpose in giving you up to your sin was redemptive. You have to get lost before you can get found. Like Charles Ellis, the man who discipled me when I was uh, 19 and 20 years old, used to tell me that as we'd go on the streets of Atlanta to share our faith with people, he would always say, Bobby, we got to get them lost before they can get found. They have to understand their need for Christ. They need to understand their sin. We need to be brought to a point where we recognize, guys, our utter brokenness before God. And then when we do... That brokenness is seen as the blessing that it really is. Like when you understand your desperate need, it's when you can cry out in repentance and faith. And so in closing, I just want to share one other time Paul mentions in the book of Romans where God gave something up. In Romans 8, verse 32, turn there in your Bibles, reread what God gave up. It says that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. Circle that. It's the same Greek word. God gave us up to our sin. He gave us up to our rebellion. He gave us up to our immorality. And then He gave His Son up for us. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Guys, let that sink in. This is the ultimate act of God's judgment. And this is the ultimate act of God's grace. Like I love how Sinclair Ferguson explains it. There is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in you. Stop listening to the enemy. You are not your darkest moment and your biggest failure. You are not that sin that clings to you and will not let you go. 
That is a lie from the pit of hell. There is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. When, when sin is great, grace is always greater. Because we abandon God, we deserve to be abandoned. But Jesus was abandoned so that we might be brought home. Like that prodigal. How many in my father's house have plenty to eat? I'll go and tell him, Father, I've sinned and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired slaves. And while he is still a far way off, his father sees him because he's been looking for him. And he runs to meet him. And he puts a new cloak on him and a new ring on his finger. The son who was dead is alive again. Let us rejoice. Guys, that's the message of the Gospel. Because you abandon God, you deserve nothing more than to be abandoned. But Christ was abandoned on your behalf so that you might be brought home. Judgment has come. It came to Jesus for our sake. And so we need to learn from the judgment that is in our life right now. Will we continue on the downward spiral? Remember, God allows us to walk through the door that we have chosen. Let's pray. So church, what will it be? What will it be? Will we continue on that downward spiral? Father, help us to recognize where we are. To take You seriously. To take Your Word seriously. To take the downward spiral and the pull of sin seriously. What door will we choose? The door of judgment or the door of revival? The door of wrath or the door of grace? The door of theological brokenness or the door of truth? The door of moral and sexual brokenness or the door of hope and holiness? Lord, I pray that You would work in our heart in such a way that we would let the kindness of the Lord lead us to repentance. Father, I thank You that You love us even in our brokenness. But You love us too much to let us stay there. Lord, we thank You for this table and for what it represents that we can come weekly to a reminder of Your grace poured out when wrath is what we deserve to have poured out on us. Thank You for Your body, for Your blood. Bless these elements Let them nourish us, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen.